Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of Chase the Peace. I'm so honored that you're here. I'm your host, Nate Mirabella. My guest on this episode, his name is Aaron Harris. Aaron and I grew up in the same town. Uh, Aaron currently serves as in-house counsel for a large consulting firm. Uh, he's based here in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, in addition to that, he's also an extremely talented artist. I'll give you guys some ways to discover uh, his art. Uh, he's also done some policy change consulting um, on behalf of the LGBT community. And uh, without further ado, we'll dive into the conversation. Please like, share, subscribe, and rate uh, if you like what you hear. Thank you so much for being here. Aaron, welcome to the Chase the Peace podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, you know, the, the big goal here is just to normalize talking about mental wellness. And then the secondary goal is to just share helpful tactics um, to help manage stress, anxiety, and depression uh, in our daily lives. So sincerely, thank you for, for spending some time here. If you don't mind, tell us about yourself and, and, and what you do. Help us get to know Aaron. Well, it's Aaron Harris. Um, actually grew up in the same area you did. So we've known each other for a while. Um, but I actually currently serve as in-house counsel for a large consulting firm and sort of work across the globe, focusing on the Americas myself. Um, also, I'm an artist and creative and have a history doing LGBT consulting, policy change consulting. So I've sort of done one of the multifaceted careers instead of just stepping on one train or riding the whole way. So, but it's been good. It's actually helped me, I think, be better at what I do now, having that background. So, but currently full-time, I'm in-house counsel um, and I really love it. So we're doing That's good great. work. I feel like I'm actually helping people. So That's great. When you mentioned creativity and art, just so the audience understands, what what kind of stuff do you do with with your so art? And my background is in painting, uh, mixed media, drawing. And then throughout my professional career as an artist, I was a full-time artist for about 10 years. And between practicing law and practicing law, I took a little gap in there where I did a lot of LGBT consulting, or you could call it policy change consulting, but also creative um, design, experience design for a lot of like churches and organizations and corporations. And that included everything from staging to sculptures, to branding, to live events and interactive art installations. Um, so it's sort of a gamut of what could fit under experience design or creative design. Um, but all of it was related mostly to the original thing, which was painting and mixed media, which somehow incorporated into that with sculpture and interactive installation art wrapped into it. So um, it was a fun time, but having your career and your income tied to your creativity is is great. And then it's not great sometimes too. So <laughs> I, <laughs> but totally I, I, I wouldn't that. change it, but, and I still do it. I still do paintings. I still sell paintings. Um, there's a place here in Atlanta called uh, Basic Spaces. It's a gallery and design space that sells my stuff locally. Um, so that's, it's nice to still have the outlet, but not be dependent on that paycheck to pay for everything. So yeah, when you create, is it is it something you schedule or is it like you get inspired and then create something? It's both for me. I'm, I'm sort of this weird split brain. I'm not a true full right brain creative. So I sort of have both sides of the creative side. So everything from planning it out to executing it to like 
waking up in the middle of the night and having an idea and have to go do it. So I would say as I've gotten older, it's a little bit more controlled and scheduled and planned than it was when I was younger, just because I've come into a better balance with it myself. So, but it, it still have moments where I'm like, oh, I have this idea and I'll just like go out. Luckily, even during work, I can take 30 minutes, set it up and get the first layer going and then come back to it and sit with it for a few days. So it, it, it is both, but I would say it leans more to like having to schedule time for it just because life is so crazy now, schedule's crazy. But I find if I like take the time to plan for it, it actually tends to go better than just like spur of the moment. But I can't say I still don't have spur of the moment creative session. They're just fewer and further between now than they used to be. Do you have a piece of work that is like your favorite thing you've ever done or or is there multiple yeah there's a there's a few and i think the ones that were whether i knew it at the time but the ones that were really helping me process a lot of what was going on internally so my paintings are a lot like a journal for somewhere else so those pieces in particular are probably the ones that have the most significance to me personally and some of them are not my most popular paintings or the most successful paintings, but some of them are. So I can name three of them in particular. They're all very colorful. Two of them, one of my best friends owns because he just loved the story behind them so much and the personal connection to me that he bought them from me. One is a large format mixed media drawing and ink and watercolor. And it's sort of, when you're looking at it now, I'm like, how did I not know at the time this was me really processing my coming out and coming to grips with sexuality? The other one is a fluid drawing of Jesus, and it's all super colorful. And it's where I take the paper and drop the ink on it and move the paper to move it around. And then did that. That one sort of reminds me a lot of my experience in relationship with Jesus, just how he's so pliable and how he's interacted with me out throughout the years. And then... The third most popular one actually hangs at Buckhead Church, and it's a large format. It's called Movement or Moving, and it's a huge piece where it's like looks like someone or a crowd is rushing by it. Like if you were to just like see the trailing effect of an image, and it's about I think it's eight foot by ten foot, and that's probably one of my favorite pieces. I actually had it made into wrapping paper. I use it for wrapping presents. It's on the cover of my book, and it's in several pages of the book. Um, so those are part of the three favorite and they're all the most colorful pieces I've done too. So a lot That's of my really pieces are cool. very colorful, but these are like every color you can imagine <laughs> included in on it. So is there anything that you do creatively that helps you specifically with anxiety and depression? Yeah. You know, I think the process for me, it's my creative outlet is often releasing a lot of the internal energy I have, which I sort of relate my anxiety to like a buildup of energy, nervous energy, because I'm, I notice when my anxiety's flared up, a lot of my energy's flared up too. And what I mean by flared energy being flared up is that it's more jittery, have a hard time settling. I'm very fidgety. I can't get comfortable. Like I'm twitching, constantly moving my shirts or like adjusting. Like if I have a necklace on, constantly moving it, um, being very aware of like, everything my skin's touching i get very like focused on like oh my socks feel weird or this collar feels weird so the creative space allows me to get a lot of that energy out just like working out does too but creatively allows me to get that mental energy out that like what i call the chatter of my brain it's sort of shut down over time throughout the process of creating and it becomes silent or it becomes much more manageable for me to hear more positive chatter in my brain versus the anxious you know, fearful, shame-based chatter. So 
it, it does that for me. It, not all the time. Sometimes it can do the opposite, and it really depends because if I'm focused on like, well, the person I'm doing this painting for like it, will people think it's weird? Is it too over the top? Is it too avant-garde? Is it too this or too that? I can make it worse. So it's a, I have to sort of be very mindful of where I'm at in that moment and listen to it and either continue with the creative because it's helping or say, you know, what, I need to step away. This is not helping. And then go do something else, like take a walk or go to the gym or something. That's really interesting. So it's like creating something for yourself can help you channel that energy. It's almost like if you're creating something for someone else, it like it can have the opposite effect. That's really interesting. It actually, and it depends though, because sometimes creating for someone else really releases for me because I'm very focused on how grateful I am to that person or something about their story and like making something that they'll enjoy and like stepping outside of myself. Well, sometimes creating for myself can do the opposite. It can be like, is this piece even worth it? Am I wasting the cost of these materials? Like, is this, this, is this a waste of my time? Should I be doing something else? Aaron, you're just painting for your own enjoyment. Do you even deserve that? Like, why are you just painting for yourself? Like, you should be doing something else. A lot of my materials are also very expensive. Like, I work with resin a lot, which is extremely expensive. It has a cost in the sense of, like, the odors of it affects your lungs. Just like, you just get all that kind of stuff. So it's sort of is a... A lot of you'll see like that I call it's called dialectical behavior or dialectical thoughts is where you have two competing thoughts at the same time. And I've learned as I've gotten older that and through therapy that that's something I deal with a lot. So the same thing can be both for me, depending on the situation. So sometimes doing painting for someone else is better for my mental health. Sometimes it's worse and vice versa. Sometimes doing for myself is better or worse, depending on the narrative attached to it, which also ties to my anxiety and my depression is the narrative often. You'll hear me talk about narrative shifting, listening to the narrative, discerning where the narrative's coming from. That's a lot of what I've learned to help in mind. And same thing with like my creative or even like people going to the gym. Some people go to the gym, they feel a complete release. And they're like, this is amazing. Sometimes I have friends that go and say, I can't hardly focus. I'm comparing myself to everyone else. And my arm's not big enough. I'm not lifting as much weight as I think I should. Or I could do five pounds more last week, but not this week. And it becomes sort of damaging for them too. But it's not always. So it's sort of, being able to adjust in the moment and be like, where am I at personally right now with this thing? Not all things are good or bad. It's just often what's my motive or intent or narrative around it in this moment. Is it healthy for me right now? So, And when you were talking about how you, how you notice anxiety, it's like, it's like kind of sensory things, right? Right. Like what, you know, your necklace or your shirt or you'll feel, you'll feel your socks. What just, what can you tell us about your personal experience with anxiety and depression, take us back to when you first started experiencing those and how did they manifest and right. how was it diagnosed all those things? Yeah, I think like I often think of my mental health as like historical and then future. It's very rare that like when you're dealing with anxiety or some form of mental health, it's very rare that you feel in the moment with it. It's always looking back or looking forward. Um, Historically for me, mine showed up pretty young. I don't know if I knew at the time what to call it. It's only now looking back that I'm like, oh, that's what that was. You know, but at the time, I'm 45 now. So when I was in elementary school, the topic of mental health, the topic of therapy, all these things were not as top of mind. Not that people didn't do it, but it wasn't as cool or okay to say, oh, I got to a therapist. Now it's like, if you don't go to a therapist, people are like, what's wrong with you? You know, but, <laughs> um, but back then also there wasn't the internet, there wasn't all the resources. So like for our parents, my parents at the time, they didn't have the resources 
to know what to call some of the things that they saw on me or to even know to notice it or to look for it. So I can look back and be like, oh, they didn't catch it. They didn't do it. But they also didn't have Google at their hand that could you could research anything and be like, what is this? What could it possibly be? They were going off of their community and whether their community noticed the things or focused on the things. And growing up in church world, Baptist world, like therapy wasn't necessarily something that was encouraged. It was almost like that's new age stuff. Like you just pray and make it better. So I remember my anxiety and depression showing up from a young age in the sense of being uncomfortable and having a discomfort, not like in the sense of, oh, I don't like this chair, but this not feeling comfortable in my skin, not feeling comfortable in the environments I was in, being shy, being insecure, being aware that something was different and not necessarily knowing language around it. I think sometimes not having language around something can increase the feeling or the anxiety or the depression or whatever it is that you're dealing with. Just having words around it can help or pictures or something to point to and say, oh, it's not just me. Oh, yes, I see myself there. There's someone out there. This isn't like something wrong with me. At that age, younger, I saw something was wrong with me. Like, I can't be still. I can't do this. I can't be present. I remember just never often not feeling like I could relax and having like guilt for like that and some of that's also just growing up on a farm. There's always something to do. And your dad's like, we're not going to lay around on a Saturday. We're going to do work, which I'm glad he taught me. But that kind of mindset sort of persisted for me. The sense of like being still was never comfortable for me. Looking back, I wasn't okay with my thoughts and myself. So when did someone say, hey, I think this is what you're experiencing? Was it, you know, the first time you saw a therapist or? To be honest, the first time I really accepted that I deal with a lot of anxiety was probably the last two years. And last year, I had a huge flare-up of anxiety and finally was able to say, oh, I do have anxiety. This has been something that's persisted for time. I do deal with depression. I had given the word depression much earlier, probably like high school, college, because that was a more common thing. But anxiety was not something I allowed myself to accept as to what it was I was experiencing until it paralyzed me. And that's when I could do it. So so it's sort of a shift. It was an awareness of something there, but not necessarily admitting or accepting that it was full-blown, like clinical grade anxiety that was paralyzing. Um, but depression, I would say college, probably the first one I fully accepted, oh, that's what this is. I often tied it to, I was not where I need to be spiritually. I was dealing with my I was de dealing with same-sex attraction. That's what all the feelings were tied to. It was really easy to point to that as opposed to going, like, even without that, this was here. There was something else here that was just one of the things that I could point to or hang my hat on around it. The anxiety goes so much further and deeper than whether I was gay or not and whether that was a sin or not. So, um, yeah, it's not a clear answer, but fully accepting like I'm a person with full-on generalized anxiety disorder two years ago and probably fully last fall. Yeah. When you said you were paralyzed, what do you mean? I get decision paralyzation um, where I get stuck. So for instance, even just researching things I like, I might research something for months on end, talk about it for a month on end and still not be able to decide, like picking a car. Um, choosing whether or not to get a parrot or to get a dog. I mean, to decide about where to go eat and what to eat at a restaurant. So I'm a, I am call myself a creature of habit, but it's really because of anxiety. 
Like I know a certain restaurant I know I'm going to like. I don't have to get there and think about what they have and will I like it, will I not? How will people judge me if I order this thing versus that thing? I just know at these restaurants, I get this meal. I can focus on the people and not worry about what I have to pick, you know? Um, deciding about trips, choosing how to pack. Like I'll often just put a suitcase out and stand and stare at it for an hour. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm not even exaggerating. I'll just look at it. Um, putting away things, things that I know that have value or things that I know I could get rid of, like cleaning my closet out. Like I have piles of clothes that I, I know are good that I've hardly worn that should go to someone else. I just need someone to help me say, yeah, you won't wear that again. Yeah, that's out of style. I mean, there's so, so many things that just pile up around me, not like in the hoarding sense, but like stacks of stuff that I'm like, that are in a neat place or in a place where they should be, but it's not organized. It causes me anxiety because I'm like, it's there, but it causes me anxiety to be like, I just stare at it. Like, you know, <laughs> so, so par the paralyzation shows up a lot of ways. It doesn't show up in social settings for me like it used to. In a social setting, I can run and like talk to anyone, like be the life of the party, but I get paralyzed when I leave. Like, what did I do? What did I say wrong? Who do I need to apologize for? And like my friend used to laugh, it's the text after for me. Hey, sorry if I'm a little weird. I'm like, I mean, so my paralyzing, even though I'm doing something, I'll get stuck sitting in my car, like on a text flurry of like, oh, I'm sorry I asked that question if that made you uncomfortable. Sorry if I made that joke and you didn't think it was funny or if you thought it was your expense. And here I am needing to be somewhere else, but I'm sitting in my car for 30 minutes wondering who I've offended or what I've said or should I have said that different? And my poor partner is like, can we just go? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. It's almost like delayed social anxiety. It's like you, you know, experience delayed. it in the moment. Yeah. That's really I've interesting. I've had some of it before, but most of mine post is after the fact. So. One of the things I'm learning through mm -hmm. my journey with wellness is that like compartmentalizing your life isn't possible. Right. right? I'm curious, how has sexuality played a role in your wellness journey? You know, I would say it's been a huge role in the wellness journey. And in some ways, I think that's good. In other ways, I don't like that. And what I mean by that before I get into it is that I'm so much more than my sexuality. So I hate that it's become such a big part of my story. But sometimes the things that you avoid end up growing and being the focus. It, so it's affected a great deal my journey with my mental health and mental wellness it's also in a bad way and a positive way but i've also come to a place where i'm like that is just not that big of a deal about me you know it's really a portion of and, and like less than 10 percent, like a very small portion of who i am and it's really hard to shift out of that to not lead with it because my whole life i was taught that's the biggest thing wrong with me that's the biggest thing someone could find out about me and reject me for that's the biggest sin i've ever had that's the, all these it's the biggest the worst all these things and i'm 45 and i'm still having to shift my brain into like it's just not that big a deal now it doesn't mean that like who i love and all that isn't important and it's not very valuable it's not that big a deal in the sense of like it doesn't have to be the center of who I am. It doesn't have to be the focus of who I am. It doesn't have to be what I lead with in every conversation. But I still lead with it quite a bit because I'm almost, especially with other people who are Christian, you sort of want to lead with it and sort of get it out of the way real quick and see how they're going to respond to you. Be like, is this person worth opening up to or not? Like, if they're going to shut me down, I'm going to like say like, oop, did, did you shut me down? No, okay, I'll keep going. I'll, you know, That's so interesting. I'll work on that. I'd be like, I shouldn't have, that shouldn't have to be the top 
on the list of top things I say about myself when I introduce myself, you know, and, and not just me, you talk to many people in the LGBT community and it's going to be a little bit in the forefront because it's, it's been a big part of our life. We're still judged for it and, you know, made to feel small or made to feel like it's a huge thing still. So it's not just us, but it is a history of a pattern that pushes it to the forefront or trying to push it to the background. And neither one of those actions causes it to be a focus. So from an anxiety and depression side, anxiety, obviously, it's the thing I never want anyone to know about. And you're trying to hide your whole life. So and so the fear that anyone might notice any little thing, oh, did I move my hand too much? Did I talk like move my hands too much? Did my list show up? Am I too high pitched? Did I get too excited about a Britney Spears song? Like what could <laughs> be? You know, did some did a friend look I was friends with most of my friends were straight guys. Like I wasn't one of the guys that just had friends that were had a lot of girlfriend friends that were girls, but I stayed friends with a lot of really straight, very like masculine and also very loving, very accepting men too, as I came out. I just didn't know that at the time. But like, so I was always going like, oh my gosh, do they think I looked at them? Like, what well, we're changing on a trip. Does Do they feel stuck having to share a bed with me on a trip? Do they not care? Do I care? Did they think I bumped into them? Did I, you know, it's like, did I hug them too long? Did I hug, you know, it's all that was just this an anxious storm. The depression was sort of the stillness around it. And it was the lack of thought. It was the just being so mentally exhausted, it just shut down. It was the sitting on my sofa, deciding I wanted to turn the TV on, but never hitting power on the remote and sitting there for two hours or sleeping all the time or eating. It was the, the opposite side of it. The, the acceptance or the lack of hope and that this is what my life is. I will always be lonely. I will never experience love. I will all ha always have this thing that makes me different and separate. I will never be fully accepted in church world. I will always have this thing, you know, the mark of the, the red, the letter at the scarlet letter, you know, this thing always there. The not wanting, not that I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to live like that and like not having hope kind of thing. That was the two sides of the coin for me. And now I know that that's, that's not the only two sides of the coin. That's the lie about what the coin is and what each side is. But um, so a lot of my depression, anxiety ties to the sexuality, but more deeply it ties in understanding my own value, understanding my own worth, understanding that my voice has a place and a purpose, understanding acceptance and community and um, independence in a community, understanding family relationships. So I tied a lot of it to sexuality that was just the lens in which I was looking at all these other concepts that people deal with depression, anxiety around. So like, do people like me? Do people want to be around me? Not do people like me because I'm gay? Do people not like me because I'm gay? That's just a, another descriptor on the underlying thing. So that allows me to identify a lot of people. It's just that descriptor, let's switch it out. Like, do people like me because I'm a musician and I didn't go to law school, you know, or I'm athletic, but I didn't play for football. You know, like it's, it's different things that can be for different people. Like, do people like me because my kids are friends with their kids or do they like me because I'm someone they actually like? You know, like that's like how I say this is all the same. I just added a descriptor to that underlying thing. Mine was gay or not in the church or not here or not there, or not good enough, not Christian enough or whatever it might be to the underlying narrative lie in a lot of those instances. So. 
I can't imagine how exhausting that is. Like when you were describing being with your guy friends and thinking, oh, did I hug too long? Or, you know, did they think I was looking at them? Like I've never thought from that perspective of like how exhausting that must be. Unbelievably exhausting, which is where I think the depression comes in is you just shut down. Depression is like a numbness. My body's going, I'm so exhausted, I can't do that. And it's just like, oh, flatline, you know? Yeah. Um, so depression served a role to help me too, which people don't think of it that way. But I'm like, it allowed me to have a rest for my brain to shut down, you know? And there was a rest at the expense of awareness and healing, but it was a rest. It was a break. Um, I think if you carry that out through to the furthest level, like you get to the idea of suicide, that is a break. It shuts off the thing that you don't want to feel or do. You just realize that's a very permanent solution for something that doesn't need to be. So that's where I'm going. You have to destigmatize depression. And you have to destigmatize that sometimes people don't want to deal with the depression because it is serving a purpose. It's serving a purpose that helps them survive. Anxiety is the same thing. It helped me survive. Me being very aware of other people's reactions helped me survive abuse, helped me survive different dynamics in family and church and life to avoid harm and rejection. So they both serve a purpose. So they're very hard things to set down or to say, if I get healing here, will I still be safe? Will I still have this thing that protects me? You know. So I think that's part of this journey people don't talk about a lot either. It's like, oh no, it works. That's why people deal with it for so long. It does serve a purpose. And it's just the flip side of that coin. There's another way to serve that purpose to find safety too, and through healing, you know? So, um, but it is exhausting. I think that's just, even now I can get tired thinking about that season or those seasons, you know? Well, that's, you know, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, do you still deal with that now? Oh, like, is yeah, that still absolutely. A... Yeah. I don't think I do. Like, I think that's part of like growing up in church. We're taught about healing and that you just pray or you do this, you do the work and it's dealt with. I just have not found that to be true for many people. Like, can people get miraculous healings? Yes. Can like someone's disease go away? Yeah. People get rid of cancer. I mean, people fight cancer, get over it. People deal with different health issues and get past it. People get over depression, but Depression can be situational or depression can be hormonal or depression can be like a lifelong thing that comes because a pattern of mental instability or illness or whatever you want to call it. And for me, it has ebbed and flowed much like the seasons of life. It's very seasonal for me. Like I get a little bit of like that, what they call seasonal affective disorder. I used to get that every winter. I mean, I get that every year and now I know it's coming and I've dealt with it better and I do things to help with that. But, and I don't, it doesn't cause me to not have hope by saying it'll never go away. It's just an acceptance of the reality of like, it may never go away. Like I might always have this on some level in some way. That's why I do the work to have the tools, the resources, the community, all the things around to help minimize the impact of it. So that when it shows up, I'm not dreading or feeling like I'm defeated, I went, no, I know what to do with this. I know how to deal with this. I know who to reach out to. I need to start talking about it. I know the steps, you know, and sometimes it still catches me off guard, but not as much as it used to. And I don't want to say I've resigned to it, but I have accepted that my value or my sort of success in this process and doing the work isn't dependent on whether it shows up again. How I respond to it is whether I've been successful with it. So like, to me, it doesn't seem like a lack of hope to say like, I might be 
have a, a depressed season again, or I might have an anxious season again. Now, do I like those seasons? Not necessarily, but I don't feel like I've failed because that isn't eradicated, so to speak. To me, it's the thing that keeps me centered, humbled, grateful, connected to other people. If I'm all good, like I don't, sometimes I think over time you sort of lose the thing that connects you, that humanizes you, reminds you of other people's struggle and helps you reconnect to that place of yourself. Like I'm grateful for these good days because I'm having a bad day or a bad season or month, whatever it is, you know, so year, three, two, three years at a time, you know, so. That's so good, Aaron. Your ass, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's so good because I think, um, I heard it described once, like you go from being a cucumber to being a pickle. You don't ever go back. Right. You know, it's like once you, once you start to experience these things, like they're just going to be a part of your life. Right. And, um, the goal is to equip yourself with the things that help. And there is a level of gratitude that comes as a result of that, because when you do have a good day, week, month, you know, year to, to your point, I'm still pretty fresh in my journey, only two years in. And me um, too. I'm, I'm just a year out of my last, well, the, the flare up starting with a year out, it really didn't maybe have a break on the clouds until March of this year. So, and um, I think that this goes so counter for, I know a lot of uh, both of you and I grew up in very similar church world. A lot of our friends, people watching this probably did too. This goes so counter to what we're taught in church world. Now, it actually doesn't go against the scriptures, but it goes against the narrative of church world is that healing is once and done and final, or it's this thing like it's just not that. I think we actually resist the thing that develop the thing we're said, we're told we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have the fruits of the spirit. We fight and resist the experiences in our life that actually develop those fruits of the spirit. For instance, kindness and gratitude, huge fruits of the spirit, love, all these things have never been more developed in my life than through these things. So why would I not be grateful for it? Why not resist it? And like, say, I do think you resist it in the sense you fight with it. You, you try to develop skills to deal with it. You don't resist it and say it doesn't exist. I'd say it does exist. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to fight God into it, community others into it. Develops this fruit of the spirit that therefore actually makes me more Christ-like. But we're taught it's just not, these are the things you shouldn't want. You shouldn't be depressed. You shouldn't be anxious. Yeah, maybe not, but we're humans in a broken, fallen world where nothing is as it was designed to be in the garden, so to speak. So our whole lives were fighting in the, in the weeds. You know, we're not in this perfect garden where everything's wonderful. So it's like, of course, things are not going to be great. So that's one of the things I try to say, like my Christian friends, is like, you got to shift how you view this. Like, this is not something that makes you sinful. It's something that reminds you of your humanity that also you can invite God into, invite community into, that develops these things that make you more loving, that make you more kind and grateful. We know that the church has gotten a ton of things wrong um, when it comes to, you know, the relationship with the LGBT community. Have they gotten anything right? (laughs) When it comes to the LGBT community, I hate to say it, but I don't think they've gotten much right. (laughs) And I, I think that's a, okay thing to say and I actually think it's a loving thing to say I'm not hating on the church but I'm just saying like hey you haven't done that great let's do better like I'm saying like there there's more you could do to center yourself in the value of this group the value of who you are because rejecting this group is also rejecting a part of yourself too like you can't reject any human and not have an effect on your own impact and your own view of yourself 
because what it tells you is that like right now I'm in the end circle, but what if I do something that steps out of it? Are they going to do this to me? So you're not creating safety in the church. You're creating a lack of trust because they see you do this to these people. And then inevitably people that sort of move out of that end circle of church world, it's because they've met someone out here and said, wait a second, they are this lovely person. They aren't this. Why are you being so mean to them? And then inevitably it comes to, what if I do something? Well, I don't fully agree with you. What if you knew I didn't fully agree or I didn't? And it really creates this unsettling sort of shift. I want to connect this to a, a thought that you you gave me the other day when we were when we were talking. You mentioned, you know, your your kind of process of coming out and how it affected your relationship with your father. And you said something that I thought was so interesting and helpful in terms of how to frame this. And what, what you said was you don't necessarily need your dad to understand. You just need him to love you. Right. Can you unpack that idea a little bit? Yeah. And my dad, I have so much respect for him. And we talked about this too, as I haven't always been as careful how I talked about it or about my dynamic with him, but I now see it a little more clearly. I'm not as angry as I once was just in general toward church world and my dad works in church world so he was, he sort of represented that to me and he got the brunt of a lot of my anger and distrust in general toward the Dixie church directed toward him he also didn't do everything perfectly but of course he didn't you know so and actually I needed him what I think what I said was I needed him to be loving I know that he loves me loved and still loves me but a lot of how the interactions were weren't necessarily relaying that idea in a loving way so um or at least how i was viewing it it didn't come across as that and sometimes that's what matters like am i receiving it is the other person receiving this as loving if they're not then whether i intend it to be or not isn't the concern like it's not being received as loving so let me adjust my approach and now you know several years into this like my dad has adjusted his approach i've adjusted my approach and the way it played out then was me sort of saying, like, I'm out of hiding. I've been pent up in this dark closet all this time. I'm out. And it's hard to for anyone to resist that feels unloving. Although now I can see, like, what he was doing, he viewed as loving. I just wasn't receiving that way. My dad, I don't think, ever had a moment. He's like, you know what? I want to do this thing to hurt my son. I want to do this thing to be hateful to him. Like I can honestly say, I don't think that ever has crossed his brain and his mind. I think in his mind, he what he was doing was loving. He was speaking the truth to me of what the scriptures say. He was challenging that, which the church has taught him to do. He has taught people in the church to do. Like for me to have expected much different was probably the thing that wasn't as loving, you know? So we had a distance there. We didn't talk very much. I didn't see him very much. And it wasn't just my dad. It was the whole family I sort of distanced myself from. You know, it doesn't mean I wasn't allowed to come around or wasn't like I was shunned, but I viewed it that way. I viewed that going there, I have to act differently than what's true about me. I have to act like I don't have a partner. I have to act like I'm not gay. That feels like I'm lying. That's not a safe feeling. It feels suffocating. It reminds me of all these things that were harmful to me. But they weren't necessarily doing that to me as part of the dynamic that whether we like it or not, everyone's a part of it. It's not everyone's fault. You know, um, it's a little bit of all of our fault and also none of our fault. So it was challenging in the sense of I didn't know how to show up uh, my authentic self, but also respect 
and appreciate and accept their authentic self. So my sister-in-law actually challenged me one time with a meal. I didn't like it at the time, but looking back, it was a, a very wise and vulnerable and loving approach. She said, well, Aaron, like, we understand that you haven't felt like we're accepting you, but like, like you understand that we're feeling the same thing. And I was like, oh, but it's because I'm gay, you know, at the time. But looking back, I'm like, you know what, Daisha, you're like spot on. Like, I, I can't ask you for acceptance and then not come to the table with some level of acceptance as well. And, and same thing, like, I don't have to agree with what their beliefs are, where they're coming from, to be kind and loving and to choose to be around them. Because now, if you're in a situation where someone's causing you actual harm, where they are belittling you and, like, spitting at you or telling you're a horrible, dirty, rotten person, that's one thing. That is not what was happening here. They were just saying that they didn't agree. They didn't, their theology didn't line up with what I'm coming from. And I think as the emotion got pulled back and dampened a little over time, those conversations became more productive. Looking back, I can say, like, it was never out of a place of lack of love. It was out of a place of lack of understanding. It was out of a place of being uncomfortable, not knowing what to say, not having the resources or skills, particularly to be on the side of my family. Like in the church where there's not a lot of resources for the family members of like, well, how do you navigate this when your son or daughter comes out as gay or bisexual or whatever? Like, what are you allowed to say? What are you not allowed to say? What are you allowed to ask? What should you ask? What should you not ask? So I have a harder time talking about it now, but to tell it in the way it felt at the time seemed dishonoring to those family members. Although that was truly how I felt, that was the experience I was having. It wasn't necessarily the reality of what was happening. It was how I was perceiving it. Some of it was real. Like There were some moments where we weren't as kind as we should have been or could have been. But overall, I could look back and say, like these are wonderful people that are very loving, that if you ask anyone else in their life, they represent like some of the best of what Christians are and can be. And I see that. And I always saw it, but I was a little clouded by what I was feeling and experiencing. And that, that's very natural. It's very normal. I don't, I'm not shaming myself for that. And I'm not shaming them for experiencing it through the lens of what they were feeling either. And like my brother and his wife, for instance, they had young kids and going like, well, we're not sure how to discuss this with them. So we don't know how. And I was an adult. So guess what? Kids are going to win out every time as they should. I tell my brother and his wife, like, y'all are amazing parents. You should have handled this any way that you saw fit to protect your kids. I am an adult. I was going to be okay. Even if y'all would have fully shunned me and said, we hate you and you never come around, that wouldn't have been great. But if their motivation was to protect their kids, I'm all for the kids being protected. I, I don't think I was someone they needed to be protected from. But looking back, I can say what they were protecting them from was a conversation that maybe their brains weren't ready to fully navigate yet. and. And I get that. And first, I don't have to agree with it. I could have thought like young brains could have handled this conversation on some level. But guess what? I'm not those kids' parents. I don't know their kids' parents. Or their uncle, I knew quite a bit, but not as well. They didn't. Even if they could have handled it, doesn't mean my brother and his wife had to allow them to handle it yet. Now we're much more open about it. you know. So I'm not sure if I'm fully answering your question, but it, it's a hard topic to talk about because it's an experience I had that was really hard and harmful and like and damaging to some parts of my emotions and my journey. But I can now say it wasn't their intent or even them in particular that were doing it. Sometimes it's my own perception or assigning a meaning or a value to something that wasn't necessarily based in reality. But I also have to remember that anyone 
who's grown up in church world, so actively involved in church world, is likely going to have a perspective of what it means to be loving when someone tells you they're gay. I think what they've been taught is not their fault. They are responding out of that place. And it's really hard on this side of that conversation to that that can go like there's a system systematic framework here that i'm interacting with it just looks like your face it's not you it's a system and it's a messaging around it and that's hard to say that system is doing something to me not you talking about a system my goal here is not to paint anything or anyone with broad brush i'm curious to know why the pride movement is so important to the lgbt community and then again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but why do so many Christians hate that movement so much? Right. You know, back when we were talking about this system or the systematic framework, I think it's so ingrained and deep within so many of us that we're not even aware that that's what's at play. So, and this is true across the board, not just Christian systematic framework. This is conservative versus liberal, the U.S. framework versus global framework to like how we view ourselves inside society and culture and community and friendships, all these kinds of things. This shows up in your own marriage or my own relationship too, of like how I view myself or how I view what a relationship should be like shows up. And I'm speaking often from that place versus really step back and going, what do I really want or need here? Is it what that system is saying? Like this lockstep thing, or do I actually need a more creative approach to this thing? So, so you tie that into like the pride movement, the, the word pride is sort of, from a Christian systematic framework, is an unfortunate word because we're taught so much pride comes for the fall. Pride is this bad thing. But we also tell, you know, people in our church and ourselves and our kids that we are extremely valuable. We are designed in the image of God, that we are these invaluable beings that should be protected at cost. All humans have value, you know, like that you should be proud of yourself. You should, li- you should live in a way that honors God, that you should live in a way that is excellent and do hard and work hard. Those are all things that you are teaching them to have pride about. So like having pride and being prideful are do- two different things. Having confidence versus being cocky are two different things. Um, so that's the differentiation I start with. So when it comes for the pride movement from the context of the LGBTQ+, plus, or if you want to go LGBTQIA+, plus, all the letters are grown. Um, and is this sense of having pride in who we are, meaning the journeys we've had, the things we've overcome, the fact that we're still alive, we haven't committed suicide when the suicide rates are so high within our community. Like, just to say, like, I made it. It does get better. You know, I'm here, I have community, I see other people who made it. And not only just made it, they're thriving and they're celebrating. And like I say, anything you try to like push and hide, we're taught this in church world too, you push and hide, it sort of spews out like a pressure cooker. A lot of us try to push and hide ourselves down. Communities and church world and society did the same thing. So you're seeing what I think is a bit of reaction. It's a pressure cooker reaction. I don't think that's necessarily bad that it's a reaction because so many things in our history have come out of really good reactions to things and pressure that's put down and people respond back to. So does that mean every aspect of the pride, like a pride parade is something that can't be questioned or aspects of it? Okay, well, that's a bit extreme. Well, even people in our own community think some of us are a bit extreme or a bit over the top or a bit too much. Like it's not saying that it's all 100% without question or 100% perfect. It's just saying like, 
this is how these people are expressing sort of a celebration of the fact that they exist, they've survived, they've persisted and grown, or they've just started and they've found a community of people that look like them, act like them, or that they can associate with or connect with. Um, I think a lot of the reason people in church world are resistant to it is from the first part, like, oh, pride is just a bad thing. It is people being proud of or celebrating something they don't understand or they've been taught as bad or wrong. This is probably not a popular way to view it, but for me, I often, through a lot of conversations with working in this realm for a long time, I think it comes from a little bit of a place of envy and jealousy. Um, like, I'm over here doing all these things to like do all this, and I still have all this anxiety. I still feel like I'm not good enough. And you're getting to get out there and like do whatever you want and go crazy and have sex or drink or do whatever this thing is that in some way, a lot of Christians, I think, wish they could do or had used to do and now don't. And there's a sense of freedom that they don't feel. And, so, and not necessarily true of everyone. So I'm not speaking for everything. Sure. And But I think that's a dynamic here. It's a it's a representation of a difference, something like, like cool kids versus not cool kids. Like, I think you see like a quirky nerd in school that's unaffected by the cool kids sort of box that they want them to be in. Some people don't know what to do with that. Like we all had that person or two people in school that were just so out there that you ended up sort of liking them. But at first you're like, oh, like, why are they not? Do, why are they being so weird? Why are they being so weird? So I think there's a lot of dynamics here. I think from a interpersonal side of it, I think it it causes a lot of discomfort because the questions around most people know someone that's in that community at this point. Either they know someone that they work with, it's their own sibling, it's their kid, it's an aunt, an uncle. Uh, best friend or, you know, something. They know someone who's alive in it or someone who's passed away or either from an overdose or suicide. There's some personal connection that most people have. And it causes a lot of feelings around it. Because when you start going, well, what if I love, what does it look like to love someone in that environment where they're not buttoned up sitting in a church row or at a, having a cup of coffee where they look more like me? Like, what does that mean? What are the questions that come around that? You start pulling the thread. And I explain, I have to have grace toward it because I went through the same thing. I start pulling the thread as a person who wasn't accepting of my own sexuality. And how can I not have grace or understand people who aren't accepting of my sexuality? Because I wasn't even at a time, you know, so it's going like, I've been there. It's personal to me, but it's also personal to you on some level because I and myself and you love me, you know, so this like dynamic that's just much muddier and complex than people want to say. But they're like, well, if I love them or I choose to accept them or I choose to not resist this thing because everyone around me or all the culture around me or the community I'm in does it, what does that mean about me? Who will turn on me? Well, if that's not, if they're saying that it's not a sin to be gay, where do they get that from? And how do they reach that point? Because I'm reading this verse, but then they say, well, this verse didn't actually say that in our own parents' lifetime. Like, and we know people that are alive when the Bible didn't say that. Well, then it says now, but the Bible was an error and never changed. Though those questions start going and it's like, that's uncomfortable. The deconstruction, that's a very like big word people run around, but like it's happening and it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to do. It's very uncomfortable to have friends that are going through it. Because all of us, I think, can know someone that's gone through that and you've seen their Christian community sort of push them aside, not because they don't love them, because it's causing discomfort for them. And I actually realized, like, I look at my own spiritual journey. I'm like, did I ever really worship Jesus before? Or did I worship certainty? Because 
I actually feel the closest I've ever been to Jesus is when I've been the most uncertain. And that's been since I'm now in a community or in a lifestyle that I was taught as bad. But I'm like, I've actually never felt more peace and joy in my life and peace with God. That doesn't line up with what I was taught. That doesn't line up to what people I love were taught. Because I know that's hard for my family. I told my dad, I'm like, I don't know how to make this make sense to you or to make this acceptable to you or to make this make to feel okay for me to say is that I've never felt more peace and joy in my life than I have since I came out and since I went through this journey that I always thought would have been the worst thing. I've given myself out of sin and I'm going, well, like we don't have to even agree of whether it's a sin or not. You can, you know, if you just look at my life and say, well, he's living the gay life, therefore he's in a bad place. That's an easy way to write me off. But if you look at the details of my life, well, you just said you had a flare-up for anxiety last year. I was like, yeah, I had flare-up for anxiety my entire life when I was living exactly like you thought I should. Guess what my anxiety wasn't tied to? It wasn't tied to whether I was worthwhile or valuable or whether God loves me or any of that. My anxiety was tied to whether or not people at work were going to think I'm good enough. Imposter syndrome. It was tied to taking on too much people-pleasing, like whether people are still going to like me if I tell them I don't want to go to that dinner with them. I mean, like, Will people like, do I even like myself if I can't get my socks organized? If I can't figure out how to keep my house clean? Like that has nothing to do with Jesus, you know? So, yeah. and that's a very long drawn out way of saying, but it's, and I, I sort of answer that way on purpose is that it is so ever unfolding and evolving as to why pride is in one view, a positive thing for me and a negative thing to another person. And I would argue that it's both and it can be both at the same time. There are aspects of my community that is not healthy. And to say otherwise would be a lie. And it would be crazy because you can look at any of the statistics and the math, the science around it to prove that it is not 100% healthy. There's higher drug usage, higher alcoholism, there's higher disease, there's higher like mental illness, there's anxiety and depression. A lot of people will very summarily look at that and say, oh, because you're living in sin. Okay, well, there are straight people that live in a lot of those same ways that aren't having the same issues that are living with partners they're not married to or having sex outside of marriage that are doing drugs and alcohol, and they don't have the same statistics as our community does. What does our community have? A, a systematic rejection, a shaming, an isolating, an othering that I would argue that's the thing more than like who I'm choosing to lay in a bed with or who I'm choosing to love or who, the community, I'm, how I'm choosing to dress, if I'm choosing to wear more color and wear rainbows, I mean, and throw glitter. Like, those are all really fun things. If you do those, those are not the cause of your depression, by the way. Throwing glitter is really fun. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's where I have to say, like, the acceptance of, like, two things can be true. Like, we can acknowledge there are some parts of our community that are unhealthy. But for me to say there's the church is 100% wrong because there's unhealthy parts of the church. Well, the church is riddled with molestation issues just look at the southern baptist church or the catholic church like there are systematic covers up cover-ups of it yeah and does that mean all churches bad i mean all christians are bad well of course not so why do we apply the black and whiteness of right or wrongness to this community and going okay yeah there are things you may not like or agree with that are unhealthy um so i think the the coming together of those two thoughts are really hard for people we're very black and white yes and no right and wrong and there are rights and wrongs. There are black and whites, but I think there's way more in the middle than we want to accept because it's uncomfortable to yeah. say that. Oh yeah, there's a lot of like nuance 
nuance and lack of certainty is really hard to live in. I mean, I think you, you described that beautifully. I, I think if I if I lived uh, a significant portion of my life thinking something was wrong with me, and then I found a community that was that that was like me and understood that same oppression, probably have the same reaction. Even if you had thought I'm always going to have to be alone in this and hide this and just the only dynamic was like acceptance or realizing I'm not alone. Let's say that's the only dynamic at play here. How much joy would you have and how much celebration would you have? I'm just, I'm just not alone. Like if that were the only thing we were celebrating, I'm just not alone. Yeah. For instance, I asked you to go back into hiding around some of the stuff you've dressed in your life the last few years and act like it never happened and don't talk about it and don't experience it. Would you? No, it would feel so oppressive. It would feel so suffocating to be like, I do not, I don't want to hide. There's so much freedom and not hiding. Yes. And like, I felt like I've been lying to my family for all those years and it feels so good just to not lie. Cause isn't lying a sin? Wasn't I told to lie? So like just the fact that I don't, I don't have to lie and say that, I was just hanging out with the boys. I can say I was on a date. Yeah. Or no, I live with a roommate. No, I live with my partner. Yeah. That's why all these pictures are up of us. It's not odd that I have pictures of me and my roommate. Of course, we don't sleep in separate rooms. Like we sleep in, you know, <laughs> and of course, I love this person. Of course, that's where I'm going. Yeah. For this yeah. holiday. I'm not just doing a Friendsgiving, you know, yeah. like, that is so relieving. And the fact of like hitting a full, deep, like soul and spirit level breath of oxygen. Like I'm never putting a ma- a mask back on that's going to block my ability to breathe again. I'm like, I'm just not like it. Now there are situations where it's good to, to temper yourself. Like I can't go into the office covered in glitter because that's just rude. And it's <laughs> everybody. But like, but I'm in a workplace. Where I chose my workplace, the place where I didn't have to hide professionally. Yeah. Like I'm allowed to, talk very openly about having a partner and post photos of us on our Slack channels and they celebrate it. And we get all the same questions. I would never get in certain circles. When are you getting married? Oh my gosh, we can't wait. Are y'all going to have kids? Like, I never got those questions from certain communities. Yeah. And that made me feel very othering. Now I don't want kids, but like, it's still great to think that people would think I was worthy of being a parent. I know yeah. I don't think I'm worthy of being a parent, but so <laughs> that gets me back to the question, but that that's the other part of this is like, you're asking people to, not acknowledge that they're just not alone anymore. It's interesting because I, while I can't, I can't relate to that on a, like a sexuality level, I can very much relate to that from a mental health perspective, that there's so much freedom and just not being alone. So I think this is such a, a beautiful aspect of how my story of coming out relates to everybody. And it's the sense of we can, we've all had experiences where you meet someone that you can just immediately know you have a connection with because of something. They're wearing a UGA shirt. Oh, we're both Bulldog fans. There's something automatically. I don't have to go through like, oh, do you like sports? I just know you do. Um, you grew up in Baptist church world or you grew up here? Oh, I did too. You automatically have an understanding of certain struggles or certain dynamics that person has dealt with or certain language you can use. So the concept of code switching, you hear that a lot. And, and it's often applied toward gender and race, you know, um, like the way men talk to each other versus the way men talk to women or the way black people talk amongst themselves versus the way they talk to a white person. 
the same thing here, like mental illness or dealing with anxiety or stress, whatever. You meet someone else that says, oh, yeah, I've done, you're like, okay, we can get past all the other stuff and just go right to it. Yep. That's the same thing here as well. I think that's what's so beautiful about this podcast you're doing, this conversation you're continuing and carrying forward. It's allowing someone to be like, okay, I can just sort of turn all the fluff off and let's just get right into it because you get it. Maybe it's not the exact same situation that caused their struggles or the exact same situation that brought about their healing, but you at least both have some baseline understanding of what you've gone through. When I meet another gay person, guess what? I can immediately be like, I just assume like you had a hard time with your family. If you grew up in church, that was hard. Even if you didn't, there was some level of shame and hiding you dealt with. So therefore, that's still probably a part of your life now. So I'm not surprised when you say, oh, yeah, sort of like this too. And it could be as simple as like, I actually really... Like, first, a lot of gay guys, like, I actually really like sports and going to things, but I feel like people are like, oh, you're trying to be put. Like, well, no, like, find friends that also like watching sports. I don't. I want to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't <laughs> want to talk about football, but some, a lot of my friends do, and they love going to football games. And, but yeah. like, they're just, it's that simplifying it, but like, I think that's what's so beautiful about it is that you actually do understand what I've been through because mm-hmm. you've met someone who's been like, oh, yeah, I've had a situation like this. You're like, yeah. oh, okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah it, I don't know if you're this way. I think I make a lot of people uncomfortable because um, like I just have less patience for small talk now. I, I don't know. I don't like I can small talk like, you know, we operate professionally where you, you know, that's just you kind of have to do those sort of things. But like when I'm really trying to get to know someone, it's like, you know, and the second I know someone's been through something difficult or has experienced, it's like, OK, cool, let's dive. Let's go deep. Right. Tell me about it. You know, I just, um, I just sent a, a meme around to all my friends because people laugh. They're like, oh, you just go there. But people go there with me because I do. I very much have, I think, a superpower, my skill, my ability to connect with people deeply. And I don't like take that for advantage. I love it. I feel so honored to do it. But I also like to make fun of it. So I sent this little video. It says, like, a conversation with me. It's like this person on things like, so what's your favorite color? And the person's like, oh, it's blue. And he's like, okay, what's your deepest, darkest trauma? And that's like, you know, it's the same thing here. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I can small talk, but like, what's the point? If there's someone else in this room that I can get past that, like, to yeah. be honest, I'm interested in what you do. If you have a passion or some deeper story connected to it, other than that, I don't really want to just yeah. talk about it. Oh, I moved number. I'm like, okay, great. But like, why, if you are an accountant and it's because you love what you do, I want to talk about that all day. But if it's just because you did it or yeah. like, Oh yeah, I like this. I love the braids. I'm like, okay, great. Like, like wow. <laughs> so, so, like, when I was a kid, I went with my dad. It was like one of the few times I ever felt really connected. I'm like, okay, there we go. I have a reason Let's, to talk about you know, Totally. I mean, I think I was that way to a certain extent before my challenges with mental health, but I'm just way more that way now. I, I think, you know, there's, pro- there's probably some people that see me coming and just avoid me, right. <laughs> you know? Um, well, good. Bring up your time to talk to someone who needs it. I mean, I sort yeah. of, it's hurtful sometimes, but you know what? You're doing me a favor. Yeah. You're freeing me up to not have to be fake or surface level, but you're also freeing me up to talk to someone who maybe is open to it, you know? Yeah. And like yeah. I, in one of your, like Noelle, who you talked to, she talked about like, and I'm sure JC would say the same thing or you. It's like, there's a point where there's a certain thing that used to have gotten you worked up or bothered. You just, just aren't important anymore. And you're just like, okay. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not dismissive. It's like, okay, if you aren't wanting to go there, that's fine. Like, you don't need to or have to. I get it. I've been there. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to go there. Like, I'm going to live my life in a way that I'm going to keep going there. I'm going to totally. keep going and going deeper. Yeah. Going broader. And 
you can come along or not. That's fine. I'm going to give you grace, but I'm not going to sit up here in the weeds when I can go journey into the depths of the ocean or the beautiful flowers of a garden or the jungle, or I'm going to go explore, you know? Yep. So, yeah, yeah, that's so good, Aaron. I want to shift and talk about what are the, what are some of the things you do like daily and weekly to, to maintain wellness? You know, one of the things that I've done and it's so subconscious now that it doesn't feel like an active practice, so to speak, but it's so a part of every single day. And it started out being a active practice that people would say, Oh, you're sitting down in journal, you're doing meditation is gratitude. Like I often now tell friends, like, Hey, if you're struggling with this, I just have a, a challenge for you for this week, one time a day, I want you to write three things about yourself that you're grateful for and three things that are not about yourself you're grateful for. Let's do it once a day for seven days. If you feel better, keep doing it. If you don't, don't ever do it again. That's fine. You know, because I really truly started a practice of choosing gratitude. I didn't wait till I felt grateful. I just started choosing to be grateful. And eventually I just feel so grateful that it feels odd to not be grateful. Um, that seems counter, like, say so you just dealt with the year of anxiety. I'm like, but I was grateful even during the anxiety. I was grateful for the anxiety because it was reminding me I wasn't as centered as where I needed to be. I'd gotten off the path a little bit, and it reminded me that I needed to, like, do some work to get back to a more centered place. So I was grateful for that as a reminder that it was. Um, so that practice can look like so many things. I think it's probably good, whether it's, like, a note on your phone or an actual journal, to start off actually doing the practice of writing it or typing it out just to like force your brain into not just a thought but some kind of action whether it's typing or writing i think the writing probably solidifies it a little more probably showing my age a little bit too but um and it can be simple just pick like and i have one friend that's very down on themselves i'm like even if it's just like i'm grateful for my hair like i have good hair i'm grateful that i am funny sometimes I'm grateful that I have this friend. I'm grateful for my car. Like it can literally be as like, you're just starting it. And eventually you'll get into the depths of things you're great. I'm so grateful for the journey of coming out and all the anxiety and depression and pain associated with that. I'm grateful for having grown up the church and being the church. I'm grateful for the pain and, you know, challenges I experienced there too. Like, like I'm, it's not even, I don't have to even pause to think whether I'm grateful for it. It's so true, truer than true within me. That gratitude is associated with those things. Um, I'm grateful for the struggles I've had with my family. And I'm grateful for the fact that that's not the same struggle now. Like it, we've grown, we've, it's improving, you know? And so that would be, I think, the number one most beneficial practice that I've done. I say that with the second most number one most <laughs> beneficial thing was therapy. Yes. And um, I was resistant to therapy. I was always, I didn't grow up in a in a community where therapy was like applauded or encouraged. Now my community does that. Um, but I think therapy was the most important decision I made because it was an investment in myself, my mental health, my joy, my peace, every relationship I've ever had or will have, my job, my career my ability to sleep. I mean, it was an investment in all of those things. Um, and I go every other week and I will go every other week or regularly, whatever that looks like for until the day I die. It's that important to me. Um, it's worth the dollars I spend. It's, it's just that crucial. And it's so important to me that I actually 
one of my only um, deal breakers for dating has been that if you aren't in or willing to be in therapy, we are not a match. I won't date you. Doesn't mean you're not wonderful. It's just you're not wonderful for me. Because I, I need someone who's about the work, who's about looking outside of themselves, having a neutral observer come in and help you navigate. Because that tells me something about your match for how I view the world. Even if we have a lot of different views, I view the world through that lens of that that is a crucial, important part. So, And then if I were to say a third thing, it's probably, if, although I'm not currently the 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 beacon of the example here, but I would say eating and sleeping and moving. Those three things, like physical, like health, I'm learning how much it ties to the other parts of your balance. And I've had seasons where I've been really good at it and have seasons where I have it. And I'm choosing to no longer shame myself for the seasons where I have it because that causes me to paralyze and have anxiety. And now I'm like, if I go to the gym once this week, guess what? That was a success. If I went to the gym for 10 minutes, guess what? I didn't go to 10 minutes a month ago, you know, so... And it's freed me up to like celebrate when I go and not dread the fact that I haven't gone. So um, eating has been like a a bad medication for me. It's been a good medication for me. So I look at every day, like every healthy choice, food choice I make is a win. I might have had nuggets and fried nuggets and French fries for lunch. But if I had healthy, whole foods that have nutrient rich that feed my brain and my body for dinner, guess what? I won that day. Um, even if I have ice cream after dinner, I, it, it's about over, like it's the average over time of like the choices and me not shaming myself for the bad choices have allowed me to celebrate the good choices, which means I've been making more and more good choices and I'm still overweight and I still have certain things. That doesn't mean I'm not moving the right way. It doesn't mean I can't celebrate the healthy choices because two years ago I was not making any of those healthy choices, but guess what? For the last month, I've gone to the gym at least twice a week with a trainer. I've chosen healthy meals more than unhealthy meals. I've chosen to have water over, like, you know, Coke or something. You know, and every one of those decisions adds up. So, and I, I view that the same way when it comes to mental health. Like, you have a bad day, you have a bad moment where you like give yourself the space to spin in your anxiety. Did you choose at some point today to step out of it to shift the narrative? It was a win, you know, and you start to look, I'm making an average here. What are the average over time of my choices and my decisions? And that has helped me because um, it ties back to I'm being grateful for the process. And even the bad moments, I'm like, hey, that was just a reminder. Like I ate that, you know, chicken nuggets and fries and, you know, dessert, cookie. And I'm grateful that right now I don't feel so good. Like I feel the sugar high crash and, you know, and. Um, but I'm grateful for this as a reminder that like, Hey, when I ate that healthy, like meal with like vegetables and salad, like I felt really good after. So this is just a reminder, like, Hey, you made a bad decision, but guess what? It's a reminder that you can make a good decision. So that's sort of the approach I try to take. Now I'm not great at it all the time, but sure. I'm better yeah. at it more of the time than I used to be. So therefore I'm winning at the process. That's so, that's so good. What's the best book you've ever read? There's a book called Scandalous Freedom. And it's by, I'm going to, I cannot remember his name, but I can message you after about it. He's a, he's a professor at RTS Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. And I cannot think of his name right now. He's also like a, a radio host. He has a deep voice, pretty conservative. But his book talked about the idea of like 
scandalous freedom. And that if we really look at the message of Jesus, that you should live a life of being so free that it's scandalous to most people in the church. Where he'll talk, he like jokes about like someone says, "Hey, I did this right thing." He's like, "Okay, three free sins for you." Like, what do you? You did something good. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. You know. So, um, but the idea of it, and I read this back when I was straight, so like living, you know, like trying to not be a gay person when I still thought it was sin, and I didn't realize at the time how that message would shift the narrative and the direction of my life. But it, it was this sense of like I can choose to be so miraculously free and full of joy and peace that it won't make sense to people. People will resist it. People will think it's crazy and that's okay. Like I, my life and my peace or joy or lack thereof or too much thereof is no one else's business between God and I, and I'm freed myself up to let God judge me and manage my, my trajectory in this life and the next. And, and I realized that not everyone has to agree with tied back to situation bed. Like my dad doesn't have to agree with me or to accept every aspect of my belief for us to have a really wonderful relationship. And for me to realize that he loves me very deeply, like agreement doesn't equal acceptance and agreement doesn't equal love, you know? So like those things aren't mutual excuse like you cannot agree with someone but still love them and accept them you know so the, the caveat there is like agreeing with whether someone has value or not is not what we're talking about like yeah someone's having value as a human for existing like they're gay they have value as a gay person like you can't disagree on whether they have value that's not what we're talking about and you can agree with whether you would choose that for yourself or you wish they would choose something different or whether it's a choice or not like we're going to disagree on some of that but like, I, it, it's not that. So like you, I'm not going to debate my value as a person and my value to have, to live the way I'm choosing to live. That's not up for debate, but our theological perspectives can be up for debate or discussion that we have and differentiating view. But my, the value of the love I have in the life with my partner, you don't have to like it or understand it, but we're not, I'm not going to debate whether this is a real love. This is a real thing. I'm not going to debate whether I'm worthy of joy and peace because i am as you are and we can talk about whether we want to go to the same church or the same denomination and whether that we agree on that or whether we agree on whether rupaul's drag race is a sport or not or whether football (laughs) is better than baseball or fried chicken is better than steak you know so those are things we can talk about we can debate the nuances of scripture and you know interpretive interpretation of the scripture over time like we can debate that that's not debating but i'm not going to debate my value or my voice so that's so good aaron i feel like if that's all we said here in this hour and a half that's that's worth someone hearing you know and i I think so i I hope people get the message that it's just worth talking about yeah like the other thing that i i like wanted to say we haven't said is that i do believe that with if the concept of if it exists, it will persist. And what I mean by that is if some form of mental challenge or struggle or illness exists, it will persist. It's not an option whether it persists or not. It will persist. Healing is the option, the choice here, not the mental illness or the struggle. People often say that's the choice. Well, you're choosing to struggle. You're choosing to be anxious. No, that if it exists, it persists. It will persist, persist and grow but healing is a choice, doing the work is the choice. And we celebrate the healing, the choice, the work. We don't shame people for having something that 
Why would someone choose depression? Why would someone choose anxiety? Like now I would like Francis Bueller, like I would choose to be gay. It wasn't a choice for me, but I would choose it now because I love it. And I love my community and my life. But like, why would I choose that if I knew it would cause all the rejection and struggle? Like, like I wasn't four years old saying like, guess what? I'm going to choose this, you know? And I joke the other day, like, when did you choose to be attracted to girls? It just, yeah. it just sort of happens, you know? Just, so that's yeah. the other thing to say here. Like, hey, like, if it exists, that's very human for mental illness or struggles to exist. It will continue and persist if you don't do the work. It won't just persist and be stay the same. It will get worse. It will get more intense. All mental illness and struggle is a message. It's a, it's a message, and your your body or your mind is trying to t- tell you something. So until you do the work, find healing. Healing for me is the process, not the like being healed. Healing is a process. It's a it's a journey. It's a way of living. So I live a life of healing, meaning I'm constantly evaluating where I'm at, what I'm dealing with. Is that that is the choice here and that is the win choosing the the life of healing is a choice a lifestyle to choose and that is the win you choose that life is always improving even if some days might be worse than the next the average of your days is on the up the uptick not the downtick so um that's so good and that's where the hope is is that average of time it's not the day-to-day look at the average of your life the trajectory of it is it on the upswing or the downswing and that's so good that is where hope i think comes in that's where my anxiety really sort of settles is and like dissipates is the hey like the overarching trajectory of my life is on the upswing it is growth it is healing it is more freedom more peace more joy so love it aaron sincerely can't thank you enough for your time um i'm I'm really grateful and you said so many things that were so helpful for me um but i think it'll be helpful for others Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that conversation was helpful for you. I know it was for me. Uh, I've given you some ways in the body of the content related to this episode where you can go see the work um, that Aaron does, his artwork. So go check that out and support him. Uh, Please like, rate, share, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.